morning. Good morning, Creekside Bible Church. Friends, I don't know if I'm ever going to get tired of saying that, by the way. Good morning, Creekside Bible Church. As we get started this morning, continuing on in our series through the letters of the churches, uh, to the churches rather, to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, I would turn your attention uh, to that same section of scripture that our dear brother Tim uh, just read for us. We'll be going through Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 this morning. And as I am oft to do, friends, I would just like to open in a word of prayer. Awesome and amazing God. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you, Lord, that we could wake to new mercies. We thank you that we could gather together in this place to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father God, we thank you that we can call one another brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, Lord, that we can gather in this building and worship you free of fear. Lord, as we turn our attention to your holy word, we pray that you would bar our hearts and minds from distraction. We pray that you would focus us entirely on your word, on your will. Lord, would you help us to come to know you even more? Would you reveal through your word your character to us even more clearly? Lord, would you stir in us our passion for Christ that we might hunger and thirst for righteousness? In Jesus' name, we pray these things together. Amen. So friends, as we continue on in our series through Revelation, we come to uh, what many people uh, know is the church of Ephesus. Now, if you've heard me talk at all of all the epistles, of all the letters that, that Paul wrote or all the letters to the churches in the Bible, Ephesians is my favorite. When we look at Rev, uh, the book of Revelation and we see the letter to uh, the church at Ephesus, it seems as if that church has moved away from that same church that Paul wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus at. So this is another letter that Christ has given to John to deliver to the messenger of the church at Ephesus. But as we consider what's going on here, we want to kind of take a look at what Ephesus was as a city, why it's significant. It'll help us kind of frame what's going on. And so here we are, around 95 AD when this is written, and Ephesus was an important city. There was commerce from all over the world. It was a port town where ships would come and go. And when the epistle to the church at Ephesus was written, the book of Ephesus that we have in the Bible, this was far more true than it was in 95 AD. You see, in 95 AD, commerce had begun to slow down, and while Ephesus was still a big city and still a cultural powerhouse, it had started to lose a little bit of its emphasis in the Roman Empire, and there's all kinds of fascinating historical reasons for that about silt building up in the entrance to the harbor, and we don't have to get into that, but if you want to have a nerdy kind of Bible history conversation with me sometime, let's do that. But Ephesus had begun to kind of wane in its uh, prominence. Nonetheless, it was still a big and important region, a big and important city. There are several groups of people in Ephesus at the time that this letter was delivered to them. There were all kinds of different uh, people groups living there. Some of them were the indigenous people that had lived uh, in the region before Greek had, uh, the Greece had come and the Greek empire had kind of came. Some of them were the original colonizers of Athens. 
There was a group of people that comprised three different original tribes of Greece that were living in that area. There was a sizable Jewish uh, population there. As a matter of fact, a very large Jewish population there. Not to mention many individuals and, and smaller people groups that had populated the city at the time because remember, this is the Roman Empire and people move around and slaves come and go and there's all kinds of different cultures centered here in Ephesus. And Ephesus is known all over the world, all, all over the known world at that time, not just because it's a cultural center, not just because of the commerce, but also because this was where the temple of Athena was located. In Rome, it would be, be Diana, and, and I think in, uh, in Greek it's Athena. Or, um, I'm sorry, Artemis. I apologize. It's the temple of Artemis, not Athena. And this was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It's this massive temple. And Artemis, or Diana, depending whether you were Greek or Roman, was, was the goddess of fertility, among other things. And so there was a lot of decadence and sinfulness that was happening in Ephesus. There were these temple priestesses uh, that were actually prostitutes, and, and it was all kinds of wickedness from a Christian perspective, but it was a huge epicenter where people would come from all over to see and to worship in this temple. Also in Ephesus, annually similar uh, to an Olympic game, but every year they would have a giant athletic competition where people from all over the empire and certainly all over the region would come and compete in these athletic events and they would gain honor and, and glory and all of these things. There was a lot going on in Ephesus. And so from an evangelistic standpoint, this is a fantastic place to be if you're a Christian. There are pagans and non-believers everywhere. As I look out at this congregation, I see many people who I know are passionate about evangelism, and you guys had a field day in this place. It would have been crazy. There's all kinds of people who believe all kinds of different things. As a matter of fact, there are people who are hungry to believe in just about anything, and that's what is going on in Ephesus when this is written. And we see, as we look at verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, by the way, which is Revelation, not Revelations, for all goodness sake, please drop the S, folks. <laughs> it's Revelation, not Revelations. And as we see in verse 1, it says, to the, letter, or to the angel of the church of Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, when Pastor Cliff has, over the last couple of weeks, given us our introduction, gone through chapter one, he explained very clearly, but I would like to remind you that when the Bible is using the word angel here, a far more accurate translation in context is messenger, right? Messenger. Now, people often debate that angel word. Some people like to say that it's a literal celestial angel that watches over the churches. And honestly, to me, I don't want to bag you if that's kind of the, the, the position that you hold, but this makes the least amount of sense to me when we examine the language in context. Now, many other people like to say it's the pastor of the church. It's specifically speaking to the pastor of the church at Ephesus or, or uh, Philadelphia or Smyrna or wherever else uh, it's being, that particular letter is being written. But, but given kind of what we know about biblical leadership structure and once again studying the Bible and its language in context, it, it doesn't make much sense to me that this letter would be addressed to an individual elder, to an individual pastor. 
I happen to prescribe to, prescribe to an understanding that says this uh, p- specific language means a representative of the church that was tasked with delivering this message from John to the church, to a specific church. But, but honestly, friends, whether the salutation is to an elder or whether it's to a representative of the church is really entirely beside the point. And it's just a hanging, sticking point that people, I think, often argue about. Because if we look at this section of scripture, if we look at verse one of chapter two of the book of Revelation, it's the words that come after it in this verse that really carry the significant amount of weight. It says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, I don't want to dismiss any word in all of Scripture, but for the sake of us understanding what's happening in this letter, it really doesn't matter if this message was sent through a celestial being, which I don't think it was, or, or through a pastor, or through a representative, because the me- who the message comes from is what really matters, not who the message comes through. And that's what this section of scripture is establishing, who this message comes from. This message comes from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. He is speaking to each of the messengers individually. But the reminder here is that there's a total of seven churches to whom he's speaking because it's also the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In case you missed it or it's confusing to you, Christ is the one who's delivering this message, whether it's through a messenger of celestial being or a messenger of individual being or a messenger just as a representative of a body of believers. Christ is the one who sends this message, and that's the important part to hold on to. He's speaking to each church, but the reminder here is that there's a total of seven churches to whom he is speaking, and the same Lord who is currently addressing the church at Ephesus is the same Lord who's walking with holy, burning, bronze feet through the midst of the seven lampstands. Why is this important? Pastor Cliff covered a lot of these things already. Well, because it's a clear reminder that even though what Christ says to each church is directly meant for that church, that all seven of the lampstands are meant to take warning from what he's saying collectively. Yes, each of these letters was individually delivered to each of the individual churches, but I want you to understand that these messengers all went out at the same time. This would have been public understanding. It's not like Jesus said, give this letter in secret to Ephesus, and this letter in secret to Philadelphia, and this letter in secret to Smyrna. That's not the what was going on here. That's not the way that it works. The Lord is ministering, yes, individually to each of the churches, but also to the community of churches all at the same time. This means that the saints in other churches, whether it's Philadelphia or Smyrna or wherever, can all be blessed by the counsel, by the encouragements, by the exhortations, and by the warnings of Christ as he's speaking to his bride, the church, not just the body at Ephesus. So what does that mean for us today? Why is that important? Why am I emphasizing that? What does it mean for the modern church? And and what does it mean for Creekside? Well, it means, and it's important, because even though this letter was written specifically to the church at Ephesus, the same counsel, 
The same encouragements, the same exhortations and warnings were meant, that were meant to bless the early churches all throughout Asia Minor are still meant to be a blessing to us today. We can still learn from these things. So as we look at this section of Revelation 2, we'll see a pattern that's established. And this pattern is basically carried throughout the letters to all the seven churches that we'll be looking at, with very minor exception being only two churches have a slightly different pattern. First, as we look in this section of scripture, we'll see that declaration of who this message actually comes from. In every letter, Christ reminded the church that he's sending the message In every letter, he reminds who he is. And the way I see it, he's reminding them of whom he is in such a way that it displays his authority over whatever their given situation is. So when we read to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, we see that what he's doing is he's reminding the church at Ephesus who he is in relation to eternity, who he is in relation to the seven stars, who he is in relation to the seven golden lampstands. He's reminding them that he is over all and above all and through all and in all. He's reminding them and, and us as a result that he is who watches over his churches. And that he, it is he whom all glory should be given, who all emphasis and all focus really should rest with. He's reminding them and us ultimately that the church, both local and universal, are all about him, all for him, and all sustained by and through and of Jesus Christ. This is an important concept to grasp as we move forward, because it's a reminder and sets the stage of everything that comes after in the next few verses. And we see him establish that same pattern with every single church. He says, this is who I am, and then speaks to their situation, reminding them that he is Christ, not just of an individual, not just of one local body, but of his entire church, the bride of Christ. So next in this pattern that we'll see established here in the letter to the church of Ephesus, we see an establishment of knowledge and of praise for what they're doing and what they've been doing correctly. So if we read in verses two and three, you'll see what I mean. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Christ is again reminding the church that he knows all that takes place within his churches. And as such, he knows all the works that they have labored in under his name or for his name. Christ is establishing this pattern and this this, uh, uh, mentioning of the fact that he knows everything that happens within his body. And we also see here that Christ is commending the church for something that's actually become really unpopular in our current culture. It's actually the first of two ways that he commends the church in in kind of a a currently culturally 
unpopular way. See here, he commends them for something that we've tried to disassociate from Christianity. He commends them for their intolerance. Yes, that's correct. Christ is commending them here for their intolerance. He's commending them for their intolerance of those who are evil. And and I want you to notice that something here that, that Christ is saying. Christ isn't merely commending the church for being intolerant of evil things, which is something that we kind of have adopted as a, a modern uh, culture of Christianity. We say, oh, well, 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 we don't commend evil people, we commend evil actions, evil things. Well, Jesus here isn't commending evil things. He isn't commending evil thoughts. He isn't commending evil, uh, uh, evil actions, and he's not commending the intolerance of evil things or the intolerance of evil thoughts or evil actions. Christ is commending them for being intolerant of evil people. Do you see that? He says, I know your works, your toil, and your impatient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. This is not a condemnation. It's a commending, a hearty commending of the fact that they will not tolerate evil people. Now, friends, I know that this is not a popular thing to say in our current culture, And I'm sure that a couple of you are uncomfortable with the idea that Christ is commending any type of intolerance or that I would say that from this pulpit. But I want you to remember that this is the Bible, not Pastor Justin. I'm not saying some personal revelation that I've received. I'm saying what the Bible says. People people are evil sometimes. And Christ commends that we not tolerate them. He commands that we not tolerate them. As a matter of fact, we see here in this section of Revelation that Christ tells us that it's perfectly acceptable and indeed commendable to be intolerant of evil people. People that would preach a false message. People that would try and call righteous what God has clearly declared as sinful. People that would attempt to deceive God's people and turn them away from the truth of the gospel. It is perfectly acceptable and appropriate that we as a church would not bow, not kowtow, not move away from, not shrink away from anything that would say that evil people are unacceptable. It's important that we as a church would never kowtow and bend a knee to a tolerance culture and that we would be absolutely intolerant of evil people. That's vital for us as a church, that we would never, ever, ever accept evil people, that we would always be intolerant of the evil that people do and of evil people who refuse to repent, that we would declare their proclamations to be false, and that we would instead always as a church stand firmly in the truth of Scripture that is unwavering. Creekside, let us never, ever, ever be a people who tolerate evil people. Let us never be a people who tolerate evil deeds. Let us never be a people who tolerate evil ideologies. But instead, let Christ say of us that he commends our absolute intolerance of evil people our absolute intolerance of anyone that would seek to pervert the truth and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But just in case you're getting really uncomfortable and you're afraid that I'm, I'm the kind of man that would stand behind this pulpit and encourage a sinful kind of intolerance, friends, I'm not doing that. Let's keep reading here in this section of scripture because God in his mercy and his grace has given us an even clearer definition of how it is appropriate to be intolerant. So next, we'll see a charge that's brought against the church at Ephesus. Now, of all the seven churches that we'll be looking at over the next several weeks that have a letter written to them, all but two have a charge brought against them. Only Philadelphia and Smyrna avoid this hammer. But I'm not preaching on Philadelphia or Smyrna. <laughs> so let's check them out. Starting in verse four, it says, but I have this against you. Now just stop right there, friends. Those are words you never wanna hear from the sovereign king of the universe. Those are words that you never ever wanna hear from Christ, that I have this against you. That's a bad day. And we should pay careful attention anytime Christ says anything like that. And he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And in the first part of verse five, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So as we continue on in this scripture, we begin to see that even though Ephesus had a good grasp of theology, even though their doctrines and their practices that they participated in under those doctrines were sound, even though they were great at having an intolerance for evil people, it would seem that this church had a serious heart condition. They had abandoned the love aspect of speaking truth in love. This is an instruction that Paul specifically gave to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. To speak truth in love, it's almost as if God is all-knowing and omnipotent and understood that Ephesus would have a problem in this area. And so then, by his spirit, had Paul write to remember to speak truth in love. It looks like the church at Ephesus missed the memo. You see, friends, when we look at this uh, charge that Christ brought against them, it's actually pretty terrifying. It's scary, it's perilous, and it's heartbreaking. Why? Why would I say that this charge against the church at Ephesus, some other church in the ancient Asia Minor that we won't ever know until we go to heaven, why is it perilous and heartbreaking? Why is this truth so scary? Because, friends, what it, what it reminds us of is the fact that abandonment, because remember, that's the charge against them, that they've abandoned the love that they had at first. And abandonment, friends, is a choice, Abandonment is a choice. You don't accidentally abandon something. Now, I know that there are some of you right now that are thinking about all the things and all the different ways you could accidentally abandon something. I love you. You're wrong. Don't be so stubborn. The truth is, is abandonment is a choice. Now, you may not realize that you've abandoned something that you've abdicated a responsibility or that you've walked away from an obligation. 
Because sometimes that abandonment, it happens slowly. It happens incrementally. And so as we become calloused or busy or distracted, the fact that we're abandoning something, it goes unnoticed. But friends, just because something goes unnoticed doesn't mean it happened by accident. Abandoning something takes a choice or a series of small choices. And the church at Ephesus had chosen to abandon. Or, when we look at this language, they had grown lax. They had grown lazy in their love. Their love for what? Their love for one another. Their love for the lost. And ultimately, without realizing it, they had abandoned and grown lax in their love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, how do I say that? Because, friends, a church that cannot stand firm in their love for Christ, that, that cannot obey his commands, can't say that they love him. But Pastor Justin, Jesus told them that he commended them in all the ways that they were obeying his commands. That's not true, friends. I would remind you of John chapter 14, verse 15. Christ says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, we see Christ say this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. That you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Friends, if we are not speaking truth in love, if we ever become a church who abandons the fact that we are told to serve in love, then we've abandoned our first love, Christ. And this is what it seems like has happened at the church of Ephesus a church cannot stay the course. A church cannot honor God. We cannot obey all that God has commanded if we ever lose sight of love. But it has to be love biblically defined, not culturally browbeat into people. Next, we'll see that the church at Ephesus is given an instruction and a warning. It says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So what we see here in this section of scripture is yet again Christ emphasizing that this is not a practices and deeds malfunction that the church at Ephesus is having. This is absolutely a heart condition. I said just a little while ago, it would seem that Ephesus has a heart condition, and this scripture backs it up. But why? How can we be certain that this is a heart condition of the church? Well, is it because that Christ is talking about love, and love comes from the heart, and so that's how we know that he's talking about heart conditions, because they lack love? No. No, it's not. See, you can love someone sincerely, but love them wrongly. Ask me how I know, or rather ask my wife how I know. You can love someone sincerely with all your heart, and men, we tend to be really good at this. We can love someone sincerely with every fiber of our being and not be loving them the right way. So we know that this, this is not 
necessarily just about love. So what about this scripture tells us that it's a heart condition? Well, we know that this is a heart condition of the church because the church isn't told just to correct their actions and deeds, are they? As a matter of fact, we see very little of the idea of correcting actions and deeds. Instead, the church is told to do what? To repent. The church is told to repent. This means that the collective heart of the church at Ephesus was not in right standing with the Lord. That collectively, as a local body, the church at Ephesus had hardened their hearts. And God is calling them to repent. See, repentance is about reconciliation and restoration with the Lord. When we have been given the grace to believe by faith, we're told to repent. Why? So we can just confess all of our wrong being to the Lord who knows everything anyway? No, friends. It's a humility, a humble heart that lays bare and open before the God of the universe and says, Lord, this is what I've done and how I've sinned against you. And God, I pray that you would forgive me. Help me to turn from this. Repentance is about reconciliation of our heart to God's. And so, because Christ tells the church at Ephesus to repent, we know that collectively the church has a serious heart condition. They are not in right standing with the Lord. Most often in the Bible, people aren't uh, told to repent simply when their practices are askew. Usually they're told to stop doing this thing, start doing that thing, if their actions aren't quite right. But here they're told to repent. And then they're given a stiff and scary warning about what will happen if they fail to repent and return to love. Now, oftentimes when we read in scriptures, we can see some things that should, for the Christian, shake us to our core, be scary for the individual Christian, but this is something that a church collectively as one body, as brothers and sisters given to one another for the cause of righteousness in the name of Christ, we should all pay careful attention to this warning that is given to the church at Ephesus. Because what will happen if they fail to repent and turn to love? Christ tells them that he himself will come and remove their lampstand. And as Pastor Cliff has explained over the last two weeks, these golden lampstands that we see in the book of Revelation are the mark of the fact that this is a church that belongs to Christ. Friends, what I want you to understand here is that Christ is saying, if you don't repent, if you don't return to love, I will come and remove this lampstand. He's telling them if they don't get their heart right and remember the love that they had at first, that they will no longer be his church. If that's not scary to you, check the pulse. That's terrifying. This idea that Christ would say, if you don't love you're not obeying my commands, and I will remove your lampstand. So all of this means that Christ is telling us that all we really need is love, right? No? He's saying here very clearly, right, that hate is a terrible thing, that intolerance of evil people is okay, as long as it's absent, absent of any hate and, and totally full of love, right? Wrong. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. 
And, and now, as we kind of keep digging through this section of scripture, I'm going to say the next uncomfortable thing. If you remember just a little while ago, I said he says two things that are not popular with culture today. We're going to get into the second one. Christ commends and encourages the hate that the church at Ephesus has. Now, before you start throwing things at me or walking out, let's read actually what Scripture says here, okay? Verse 6. Verse 6 of chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. Yet this you have. When, now when he says, yet this you have, you're doing this right. So I want you to kind of be reminded of the structure here. Christ establishes who he is, what he knows, why he has the authority to speak, exactly whose church he's speaking to. And then he commends them for the things that they're doing correctly, for their intolerance of evil. And then he brings a charge against them and gives them a stiff warning of penalty. And now, as Christ often does all throughout Scripture, he comes back to an encouragement. He doesn't just leave you with the hammer. And he comes back to an encouragement. He says, yet this you have, this thing you're doing right. You've got this part right, he says. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans which I also hate. Do you see that? Now, friends, did you ever think that you would read a section of scripture anywhere where Christ, tender, meek, and mild Christ, the humble servant and the blessed savior of his people would be handing out attaboys for hate. Now, the truth be told, this is not the sole section of scripture that does that. But we like to turn a blind eye to these things, don't we? Why? Why do we like to turn a blind eye to the things that Christ commends us for in hate? Well, friends, it's because of how I just described Christ now, tender, meek, and mild, humble, servant, blessed Savior of his people. Now, all of these things are true about Christ, but I want to, rem wanted to remind you of some of the things that Pastor Cliff has been teaching us about over the last two weeks See, this is not tender, meek, and mild Christ that we see here. You still have not seen tender, humble servant Jesus commend somebody for hatred. Instead, what you have seen is this Christ. See, the Christ that's speaking here is no longer just the humble servant. He's the conquering warrior Christ who comes on clouds with fire, clothed in righteousness and rainbows of living color, tattoos down his thighs, and a double-edged flaming sword coming out of his mouth. This is warrior Christ come to conquer. Not meek and mild baby Jesus in a manger. No longer is this the Christ that is mocked and ridiculed and beaten and scorned and dismissed. This is Christ ascended. Christ restored to the full measure of his righteous glory and wrath. This is the Jesus that's coming again. The one that the Bible tells us every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. This is the Christ who says to the church at Ephesus, you have this. You hate the work of these people, which I also hate. So who were these people? 
Who were these people that Christ hated, that he gave the church at Ephesus an attaboy for hating also? Well, there's a little bit of debate amongst biblical scholars, but most agree that these people were a Gnostic sect, an offshoot of the church that had followed a former deacon of the church that we see in Acts chapter 6. If you look at Acts chapter 6, you'll see uh, where the church is naming the seven deacons. And if you look second to the last on this list, you'll see Nicholas. He was made a deacon of the church, and he's described as a proselyte. And what is a proselyte? Well, it's, it's someone who has been proselytized, or someone, in other words, who, who changes their way of thinking, who has been persuaded and drawn to change their way of thinking. Now, there's fantastic theological nerdy debates about whether Acts 6 describes him in this way because it's a foreshadowing, or because he was somebody who formerly had a different way of thinking that then became a Christian and so became a deacon. For the context of this sermon, it really doesn't matter which, because that's just a fun, nerdy conversation. See, Nicholas, Nicholas eventually, at some point, he became twisted in his thinking. He left, and he took people with him. He took members of the church with him. And these people were involved with all kinds of really sinful and decadent things. They were a group of people that believed that under the banner of Christian liberty, you could do all manner of unsavory things, that it was okay to commit adultery as long as your spouse gave you the thumbs up because you had liberty under Christ. It was okay to participate in drunkenness as long as you were making sure to sing praises to the Lord while you were doing it. They were this weird offshoot of the church that were trying to, to bring people under this manner of thinking and using the name of Christ to promote it. And Nicholas was somebody that was using his status as a deacon in the church to lead people astray, and Christ says, I hate that. And you should too. So what does that mean for us as a church? Well, friends, Creekside, Brothers, sisters, we live in a culture currently that tries to make all manner of wretched depravity right under the banner of Christ. You will hear all form of perversion of the gospel that says, well, well, that's the way that it was before, but it's different now. That's the way that it was for the early church but that's because we've progressed. We've become different as a people, and so now sin looks different, and it's no longer sinful to do this. It's no longer sinful to do that because we have choice in Christ and freedom in Christ and liberty in Christ. These are lies, friends, terrible lies, wrought straight from the pit of hell. These are the same types of lies that these people were participating in. And the church at Ephesus hated it, and so does Jesus. And Creekside, so should we. So should we. But okay, how does all this intolerance and hate bring glory to God? Now, friends, I understand that this is a weird sermon, 
And honestly, if you would have told me six months ago that I would stand behind a pulpit anywhere and preach any form of intolerance or hate and then say that Jesus commanded it, I would have had serious doubts. But this, this is what it says in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant you, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. See, the intolerance and the hatred that we speak of here are not the same kinds that the world accuses Christians of, and they're not the same kinds of intolerance and hate that many people who would call themselves Christians have fallen under. Friends, these types of intolerance and hatred are an intolerance and a a hatred for sinful things that God has commanded us against. And remember that this all hinges on the first love. The first love. And what was the first love? A love for the righteousness of God. A love a love for all that is good and glorious according to God's holy word. And if you love the righteousness of God, if you are steadfast in your love for the purity and the glory and the holiness of our sovereign king, then by default, your heart starts to become tuned to, in, to, to not tolerate things that would be an offense to God. And as a matter of fact, as you grow in your relationship with the Lord, you begin to loathe and detest and yes, even hate those things that are in rebellion to God, those things that you hear that you know are heresies, an affront to Christ. In your heart, you detest those things, not because you're a hateful and sinful creature, which you are, but because you love the Lord so much that that which he finds unsightly is unsightly to you. Friends, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beauty, is that at one time, every person who was a sinner under wrath and who is now a sinner under grace. Every single person who is saved by Christ was at one point just like the Nicolaitans. See, I can stand here and rail against evil people and rail about the hatred of evil things and evil practices. And really, I'm railing against my former and dead self. Each and every one of us were just like them, lost in sinfulness, ready to gobble up all that the world would have to offer. But by God's grace, he granted us faith to believe, to believe in this Christ, both tender, meek, and mild, and warrior, both humble servant and sovereign king. And he granted us, just as he encouraged the church at Ephesus, to repent, to repent and restore right standing with the Lord. To believe is a gift. To repent is a gift and a command. And then we are to obey. Friends, the message that he gives to the church at Ephesus is no different than any other gospel message you have heard ever 
Believe in the power and the promise of Christ. Repent of your former ways that are in opposition to the Lord and obey all that he has and all that he has said. This is what he tells the church at Ephesus. Believe, repent, obey, and if you do this, I won't remove this lampstand from you. This is the message that we as individuals and that we as a church need to hold on to when we see the message given to the church at Ephesus. As a church, we are to collectively believe in all that God has said. Believe in all that God has done, even the parts that make us uncomfortable, even the parts that make us unpopular. We are to believe in all of these things and for those that we have fallen short in, for those areas and strongholds within our hearts as individuals or collectively as a church that we have held in opposition against the sovereign king of the earth, we are supposed to repent. And then in humility, we are to obey. Obey all that he has commanded. And friends, if you are here today and you don't know any of that, if you don't understand what it means to believe by God's grace in all that he has commanded, if you don't understand what it means to believe that you are a sinner in rebellion against the sovereign king of the universe, that you are in desperate need of a savior, and in knowing that God provided that savior for you in his son who came and lived a perfect and sinless life for 33 years, who lived and taught and died having done nothing wrong, was brutally murdered on a cross, that his blood would be poured out, that your sins might be covered and redeemed, that he was placed in a tomb where he laid for three days, And then at the end of that three days, to show his dominion and power over all things, including death, he rose again in physical form. He walked out of the tomb. He spent time with his brothers and sisters, his disciples, his friends. He prayed with them. He ate with them. And then in a short while, he ascended physically into the clouds where he sits now at the right hand of God, clothed in rainbows of living color, restored to his glory, making intercessions on behalf of you, the bride of Christ, the church, his chosen people. If you don't know what any of that means, if you don't understand that because of this thing, you can repent, you can believe, you can obey, and you can be saved from the wrath of hell that you deserve and you can instead know the glory and righteousness of God, that you can be a fellow heir in the kingdom of heaven, then friends, listen carefully. Believe. Repent. And obey. And if you want a deeper instruction on what that means, then myself or Austin or Justin Kraft or any of the elders would love to speak with you. We would love to help you grow in this way. We would love nothing more than to see you saved, not by our work, but by the grace and mercy of God the Father through Christ the Son. As we prepare our hearts and minds to receive the Lord's Supper, I would like us uh, to just pray together for a moment as our deacons and ushers, I don't know if it's ushers as well, move to prepare the elements. I want us to pray thanks for the uh, word and revelation that we've just received and pray also 
for the visible sign of grace that we're about to receive in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray.